The Funambulist Events Political Geographies of Chicago with Patricia Nguyen, Jesse Mam, Myra Huadja, Benji Hart, and Angeli Rao. Uh, hello, my name is Alex, and I'm one of the assistant curators, along with Marguerite, we're the assistant curators at Chicago Architecture Biennial. And first, I just wanted to say thank you for everyone coming. It's really amazing to see this space activated. The space is called Common Ground, and we've worked together to, along with Construct Lab, who are the contributors for this project, to create a space for convening and holding dialogues and discussions, including this one right here. It's been, we're almost, this is the beginning of the end of our programming, the beginning of the end of the biennial. And it's really special to have Leopold come back who's been with us from the beginning and through discussions about Chicago and Chicago activism. And his contributor project, this amazing blue book, if you haven't had a chance to purchase one or receive one, it's an incredible 240-page archive of his archive through the Phenomenalist, uh, and 20 of the writers have pre-curated, but they curated a selection, and then also five writers who were sitting up here have contributed five really powerful essays along with that are inside of this book. So I just, uh, again, wanted to say thank you and then pass it off to Leopold for, the, um, for tonight's program. So, Leopold? <laughs> All right, uh, thanks a lot, Alex. Uh, good evening, everyone. It's really great to be here tonight and uh, to be surrounded by quite a lot of family faces, actually, which, is, which really felt fantastic. Um, I'm going to start by reading something that I wrote because for once I wanted to be a little bit precise in what I say and not forget anything. And then I'll quickly, uh, I'll quickly introduce the book itself and then we'll, we'll hear from uh, our five uh, absolutely wonderful and fantastic guests. Uh, so first of all, I'd like to thank uh, to thank Yesumi uh, Mulu, Sebaki Gama, Paolo Tabares for their invitation to participate in their curatorial program in this Vienna, uh, as well as uh, Alex Brist, uh, who has coordinated our exchanges, and uh, Margaret Winter, as well as Lauren McPhillips for the organization of this event, and of course uh, our five uh, guests uh, here today. It's weird for me to say guest since I'm, I'm the non-Chicago person here, but uh, I'm going to call them this way. Uh, Patricia Nguyen, uh, Anjali Rao, uh, Jesse Mam, uh, Myra Kwaja, and Benji Hart um, here with us. Uh, I acknowledge that we're holding this event on the indigenous land of the Council of the Three Fires, the Odawa, the Ojibwe, and the Potawatomi Nations. And acknowledging the true honors of the land is not a liberal expiation of guilt, nor is it a statement about how a long time ago, a long time ago, this country was established on the theft of land and genocide. It is, however, an invitation to only think of this, of this place as an active settler colony in the present. This also means that every person who does not belong to one of the numerous indigenous nations of Turtle Island in South America or, or who was not brought forcefully to this continent in the context of the European slave trade, or who was not explicitly welcomed by indigenous nations themselves, as it has been and continues to be the case with many refugees, 
every person who came voluntarily or whose ancestor came voluntarily to this continent is a settler who has a material debt towards the legit legitimate owners of the land. This also, this also means that the extreme majority of architectures and infrastructure of this continent is a means to enforce the structure of the settler colony and that we, as architects, for those of us who are architects, and there's a few of us, are, among others, responsible for it. I also acknowledge that by having accepted to contribute to this Biennale by producing the book we will present tonight, we, the Phenomenalists, are contributing to the normalization of the settler colonial infrastructure and of the ecological disaster since the main sponsor of this institution is British Petroleum, BP. Our trust for this year's occurrence brilliant curators as well as the personal intuition that the political benefits outweigh this normalization is what makes us feel like it was the right decision, but we could not possibly be sure of this. Uh, we were even less sure when we saw that the inaugural dinner was hosted by Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker, who, among many other things, is notorious for his support of the Friends of the Israeli Army, which is enforcing with great violence another settler colony on the land of Palestine. I want to be clear that saying all this is not affecting our gratefulness for the curatorial and organizational team of the Biennale for having invited us to what, in terms of content, might be one of the strongest architectural exhibitions I've ever seen. It is, however, crucial that we take our responsibility and be fully aware of the political contradiction we enact when we accept to work with such large institutions. All right, that being said, <laughs> Uh, I wanted this introduction to be very precise. Um, let me introduce you a little bit to The Phenomenalist, uh, which is a magazine um, that we created uh, four and a half years ago now, that's coming out every other month, and whose subtitle is Politics of Space and Bodies. Uh, we have quite a few contributors in this room. Uh, I see Hoda is there, I see Henry. Uh, Imran might be here. and. Uh, yeah, and uh, oh, perfect. Hi, uh, and Patricia, even in the in the, the most recent uh, in the most recent issue, and of course, uh, and Nira. Uh, <laughs> Great. Well, anyway, sorry. Uh, but so uh, every every other month, we have like a new issue that sort of um, deals with these topics of politics and, and space and bodies, which pretty much means that we're trying to maybe give a spatial reading of uh, anti-colonial, anti-racist, and queer and feminist, uh, sometimes anti-ableist, even though I don't think we've been doing enough work on the matter, and uh, um, other struggles that we are in solidarity with, and to, to bring like a little, a little sub surplus value, so to speak, would be to, to bring this spatial dimension to things. Um, and so those are the most the two most recent uh, issue, uh, the most recent one being quite particular since it's uh, addressed primarily to an 8 to 14 years old uh, audience and uh, Patricia contributed to it. Uh, there's a few copies somewhere here if you're curious. Um, and so, yeah, it's very important for us to to multiply the audiences to whom we can, uh, we can speak and, uh, and we'll try try many things because it's, there are six issues a year, so it's very easy to sort of fall into the same, uh, the same uh, scheme. Uh, and that's, that's a little bit who we are when I say we. Uh, have a, a very small team. I'm, I'm unfortunately the only person who is full-time, but hopefully will 
we'll manage to, to build a few more in the, in the future. And uh, since we're talking about the Phenomenalist by its readers today, uh, please know that uh, Suzanne Napoli was the managing editor of, uh, for, this, for this book, and Jean Yazemi was a graphic designer for it. Um, so this book is, uh, is something that came out uh, in a dialogue with Paolo Tabarez, uh, and, uh, and that was supposed to be a sort of anthology of articles we had published in the past, but we tried to make it a little bit more playful, and uh, hence the name of the Phenomenalist by its readers, where we ask, uh, we ask like 20 regular readers to pick like the, 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 the text that for them was the most politically useful. And so each time you have a, you have the article itself, and then you have a, you have an introduction by the reader who, who picked it, and then we we, we publish the article. Um, so you have 20, 20 of them like that from various issues. Some of them are very old. Some of them were much, much more recent. Uh, and um, and so that's that's kind of like it's 20 out of 25 contribution of this book. Some of whom are also part of the Biennale, as you can see with Rashida Phillips in the case. But then uh, another problem, another question that participating to the Biennale was uh, raising for us, uh, in addition of the one that I just mentioned, was the implication of the of Rami Manuel in the in the creation of of the Biennale itself. Something that we felt was uh, not something we wanted to to not actively engage with. Uh, and so this is why we wanted to have uh, five uh, Chicago-based activists that are all here tonight uh, in the way they've been engaging in resisting directly or more through more indirect means uh, with uh, not only the Emmanuel administration itself but also the uh, things that are even more structural of course uh, when it comes to institutions such as as a police or uh, or neoliberal policies of gentrification that we, we will hear we will hear today. So that was that was sort of like a a, um, a very like a just. I mean, we could not have done this book without without fundamentally engaging engaging with that. And I think that's that's also what this this event somehow is part of is part of the book in that way. It's part of the project in 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 um, in stating it even more. Anyway, so this is this is pretty much a small introduction I wanted to do, and then we're going to hear um, from each of our uh, guests here um, in the same orders, and you'll find them in the book. Um, and uh, each 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 person will speak for about ten minutes, and then we we will be able to maybe engage in a conversation like that, but also like that. So, uh, so the first the first the first contributor. Uh, in the order of the book and in the order of tonight is uh, Patricia Nguyen uh, with this uh, contribution, Building a Monumental Anti-Monument, the Chicago Torture Justice Memorial Project. So, Patricia Nguyen. Thank you. Um, before I begin, I wanted to thank Leopold for the opportunity to be part of this um, amazing book and series and uh, reflect on this work um, in Chicago and then Marguerite for organizing it, uh, putting this together, and for all the co-panelists who I'm so excited to hear your work and meet you in person, you know. Um, 
So, um, I'll share a little bit about the project. Yes? Okay, so um, have folks here heard about John Birch? Yes, does someone want to tell us a little bit, like a short summary? I can pass it real quick. I could do it too. <laughs> All right, I'll do it real quick because of time. Uh, but uh, John Burge was trained by the CIA to assassinate and torture people in Vietnam during the Vietnam War and then came back as a Vietnam veteran um, to serve as a Chicago police officer and then rose to the ranks of commander um, and then led a midnight crew in uh, from 1972 to about 19, the early 1990s, where he tortured and forced um, over 100 predominantly black men um, and some women uh, and Latinx men and women um, into confessions of violent crimes that they've never committed. Um, and some have been incarcerated for um, up to 30 to 40 years. Um, 11 have been on death row. Uh, for decades due to intergenerational organizing from folks from Recharge Genocide, from Black Lives Matter, um, from a lot of young black and brown folks and the mothers of the people who were locked up um, pushed for reparations ordinance to be passed in, in Chicago. And Chicago is actually um, the first municipality in the country um, that has a reparations law that actually addresses police violence. And this is interesting because not not a lot of people actually know that. Um, and so part of the ordinance includes um, public school curriculum and CPS for middle school and high school um, and eighth grade and 10th grade, I believe, to learn about um, Chicago police torture. Um, it also includes uh, free education in community colleges for survivors and their family members. So just thinking about kind of the intergenerational impacts of incarceration. Um, and uh, the Chicago Torture Justice Center, which offers psychological services, healing, counseling, um, space for folks who are recently released um, to reintegrate. Um, and the, another aspect of it is this memorial project. Um, and so uh, this memorial project was part of a larger kind of uh, series of exhibitions um, in terms of thinking about what is what does a memorial look like? How do you honor survivors of torture? How do you think about the current movements that are happening? Um, and so uh, there was an exhibition earlier this year and John Lee, who is the architectural designer um, with myself, uh, designed this memorial project um, that ended up winning the competition that was um, comprised of uh, people who are part of the reparations movement, survivors themselves, artists, architects, um, and, and people who are committed to justice in many ways. Um, and so I could talk about the elements of the project in different ways, but just thinking transnationally, like what does it mean for John Birch to have been a Vietnam War veteran and then come and really link the histories of U.S. Imperial War with policing and police violence and anti-blackness? Um, and, and, and that those connections aren't separate from each other but necessitate each other in many ways. Um, so thinking about what is a memorial, what can it do? And so monumental, anti-monument, it was thinking about Doris Salcedo, who had her own um, solo exhibition at the MCA, this amazing Colombian artist, who was thinking about anti-monuments. And I wanted to kind of meditate on that. Um, there's a way in which monuments trap a sense of time that 
here, this is a moment in history, we gave you a sculpture, we've done, we've dealt with it, right? Um, so what does it mean to think about monuments in terms of its scale as a way to think about the, uh, the enormous gravity of the continued legacies of violence and that you can't deny its scale, but also to be an anti-monument where we haven't dealt with these histories and how it continues to impact predominantly black and brown communities in Chicago. Um, and so there are four elements of the memorial. One is that 100% of the survivors wanted their names on it. So we made sure that we had their names on it. That was a non-negotiable. And it's thinking about what does it mean to be an artist that's accountable to the community in a real way. Um, and then part of the other element of the memorial is to think about the timeline. How do we tell this history? Um, of the reparations movement. And then another is a creative writing um, piece that we'll do with survivors to write their own manifestos, to think about what's a reparative process when folks are forced to confess, to write their own hopes and desires for the future, and for the space to curl in to become a gathering space. It could be a cookout, it could be a field trip site. Um, and really thinking about the ordinance um, as a whole. If uh, How can this site actually be a place where public school students can come and hang out? Thanks. So, second on the list, we have Jesse Mam for this contribution about uh, gentrification in Humboldt Park, uh, battle for the near northwest side, ground zero in the Chicago gentrification war. I just want to sit with everything you just said. I, I don't know where to go. I, I have my notes here and everything, and um, I just want to see how we can maybe all connect these things as we talk. And I don't know, but I'm going to try. Uh, hi, everybody. Thanks for being here. This is awesome. This is a beautiful, full house of people. Uh, thank you, Leopold, and uh, everybody who's helped put this together. This is obviously the work of many, many hands. Uh, in my regular life at DePaul University, I'm an anthropologist, I teach courses, and I was so absolutely overjoyed to hear that I could write as a person and not an academic. Um, the issue of gentrification has framed my whole life story in ways that have transformed me and everybody I know, traumatized and scarred a lot of people I know, and it became an issue I researched only much later in my 30s. Uh, I spent many years working with the Puerto Rican Cultural Center of Chicago, teaching at an alternative high school where we did kind of Frarian, sort of self-reflective, self-determining kind of education. And a lot of the activism around that community in Humboldt Park, the creation of Paseo Boricua, the Puerto Rican corridor of Division Street, uh, was formative uh, for me as a teacher working with the youth there, uh, working with the organizers, but also this grand kind of experiment in what could be done with space to counter a problem we have been dealing with in Chicago, it turns out, from the very beginning, which is displacement, right? So um, that grabbed a hold of me and became uh, my passion, interviewing people about their life stories, uh, I looked at Humboldt Park, I looked at Garfield Park on the west side, I looked at Pilsen. Uh, the conditions that people live in politically and socially, their racial positions in the United States, 
in relationship to white supremacy have a lot to do with why this issue is not the same in every neighborhood, it's not approached the same, and the very machine, the growth machine that involves the city, aldermen, financiers, developers, is very different and approaches each terrain differently. So I won't be able to get into all that in 10 minutes. I will just focus on kind of what I presented for the book. But um, I want to start with uh, Janeta Rivera. Anybody know Janeta? Queen of Humboldt Park? Yeah? All right. Uh, Janeta's awesome. She graduated from that school where I taught a long time ago. She was one of my most amazing interviews because she's so mad. And she starts by saying, so we just move to the next neighborhood? and get pushed out of there, then do it all over again? When does it stop? When do we get to choose to stay? And that is particularly a resonant issue within the Puerto Rican community of Chicago, who arrives in the city in the 40s and 50s, occupies six or seven different neighborhoods where to this day there's probably less than a 1% population that is Puerto Rican. Why? because their entire experience in the city is one of constant displacement. Their experience on the island is an experience of displacement by US policies of colonization that go back 100 years, right? So all of this means there's a very specific relationship to these social forces that meant when the threat arose again in Humboldt Park in the 1990s, people organized very specific ways to claim space, claim space in public. Um, I argue basically that the near northwest side, the neighborhoods of Humboldt Park, Logan Square, West Town, Hermosa, Avondale, those areas are basically ground zero. This is where gentrification forces sit and discuss how are we going to take this block, how are we going to push it in this direction, and I know that because I interviewed them before they learned how to Google me and figure out who I am and then stopped answering my questions a couple years ago. Uh, but initially, some of these realtors and developers were very, very honest, and I began to get a sense of how they target certain places as particularly vulnerable. And the Latino community in Chicago is particularly vulnerable simply because realtors have said this, buyers have said this, you can't get the white market to move en masse to a black underserved community in Chicago. And the forces of the state that are amassed to try to make that project happen in Garfield Park, tried and failed several times, are still trying in Bronzeville mm -hmm. uh, in fascinating ways because it, it gives the lie to the idea that gentrification is some kind of inevitability, right? It's like a natural force. It's like rain. It just, we just walk out of doors and oops, cafe just popped up. It's something that takes years and years and years of planning, right? So we have some hopeful signs this year. Uh, Democratic socialist candidates have been elected to the city council throughout the near northwest side. Carlos Ramirez Rosa was already there, Rosana Rodriguez Sanchez, uh, Daniel Espata. Um, and there's an interesting kind of uh, take that we don't necessarily have to cooperate with this kind of project anymore. But Humboldt Park has lost thousands and thousands of Latino families. Where I grew up, Logan Square, was a majority Latino community throughout my youth, the 70s and 80s. Oops, I just dated myself. I'm the old guy, <laughs> the old guy in the panel. Um, 
when I was a kid and we were stopped in an alley drinking behind what we thought was an abandoned factory, uh, found out it was one of the first conversions to turn into condominium lofts, which none of us had ever really heard of in the late 80s, um, an interesting thing happened. The police walked me away from the police car and they threw my Latino friends up against the car and searched them for drugs. Uh, but for me, they took me aside and said, a white boy like you needs to get the hell out of the ghetto. If you could imagine Fullerton in California being considered <laughs> the ghetto yeah. in 1988. Um, that taught me a lot, that even living in the same neighborhood, I was living in a different reality in many ways from my Latino friends. That kind of served to uh, underscore a lot of my work with the Puerto Rican Cultural Center. Um, and it gave me a kind of window into thinking about how to look at gentrification. Turns out, most people who've written about this have mostly written about it from the standpoint of geography of inequality, looking at class, looking at wealth differences but very little attention until really recently was paid to the notion of race. How does race drive this machine, right? Um, and so on the one hand, uh, that gave me a really interesting way to think about and analyze this. On the other hand, uh, it challenges us, I think, to approach this differently from sort of simply thinking what we're doing is trying to say preserve affordable housing. Uh, neighborhoods were targeted in the 40s and 50s by urban renewal, this massive machine that essentially bulldozed entire neighborhoods. Because the state was at the forefront of telling people, we are demolishing the near west side, we are putting these four institutions here, we are putting a highway through your house, uh, people could organize and demonstrate and they began in the 70s and 80s to make major victories to stop urban renewal from destroying their neighborhoods. And what happened was the state quietly went into the background and began to grease the wheels of what we know now today as gentrification. But by the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, city policy is essentially openly saying, this is the only way we know how to improve communities, is by replacing the people who live there. So, it should strike us that this is a city built on the notion of real estate speculation. I was shocked in my own historical research to find out that in the 1800s, I mean, slaughterhouses, lumber, railroads, there was not a single industry in Chicago made nearly as much money as flipping paper. Literally, Hubbard, Kinsey, these people whose names are you know, burned into our street signs. Like, these are the people who came here, bought land recently stolen from the Potawatomi and the Sauk and the Fox, and just flipped it, and then bought it again, and flipped it again, and bought it again. Uh, that process has never really ended. And the era of segregation that defines how most people think of Chicago in the 20th century really sets the stage for the era of, of gentrification. You can't gentrify a community if its value is stable. You can't gentrify a community if people want to live there. You can't gentrify a community if people receive equitable city services there. You devalue the community, you devalue the people, and those two things in concert create this massive gap in wealth that can be recouped by investors, right? So 
We set up the conditions for that, and then, of course, we start this cycle. Um, and of course, it's an ongoing process. It's still happening. Um, I argue as well that every site of gentrification is a site of the production of what I call flexible racism. So you have a whole generation of mostly white, middle-class, affluent people who are essentially credentialing themselves as non-racist people because they live in closer proximity to people of color. And so if I can't be racist, I can say all kinds of racist things and I can go to uh, white-owned businesses and ignore Latino and black-owned businesses and I can essentially live this double life, right? Because I've proved my anti-racism by living there in the first place, right? So this emerged in so many interviews that I had. Um, it's something that uh, I start to call intimate segregation. So we're living in a world in which people are no longer segregated on the basis of an entire neighborhood separated by a viaduct, really easily distinguishable, right? It's now, of course, people living in the same building under conditions of almost apartheid. I've seen a building where that one floor was redeveloped, had a separate lock, it had mailboxes, it had a security code. The rest of the building, not even the plumbing had been fixed. People's mail fell on the floor. I mean, this is the kind of thing that you can see in, in sharp relief in places like Pilsen in Chicago. Um, so there is some hope. There's a tremendous, tremendous amount of cultural production today on the near northwest side and other parts of Chicago around this issue. People are producing films and move, they're writing poetry and performing hip-hop about gentrification. They are essentially producing so much that is saying to people, we have to essentially make a claim to space. Uh, Shy Resists uh, has done some amazing work around gentrification. Uh, places that have been displaced, like the Centro uh, Cultural Ruiz Belvis, have used their essential displacement and reinvested in kind of building much bigger. Uh, Lucha, Hispanic Housing, Bickerdike, all these groups have built more affordable housing in that part of the city than it ever had before. So the fact that this displacement has gone on for a generation has meant that people have united and worked together. There's something called the Puerto Rican Agenda that meets once a month. It's elected officials, it's academics, it's business owners, all trying to figure out how to hold on to this part of the city. I've presented there and collaborated with them, and I love this about the community. I don't even know if I'm a member of the Puerto Rican Agenda. Like, I've literally asked them, and they've said, of course you are. And they've said, you'll never be a member of the Puerto Rican, you're not Puerto Rican. White boy. Anyway. How can we end gentrification in our lifetimes? I argue that this is an unsustainable system. Chicago is hemorrhaging people. We are increasingly unlivable. We've lost 250,000 black residents in the city in the last 20 years. Um, the Chicago Housing Initiative, other city coalitions are talking about taking a hold of tax increment financing funds, deciding how people spend things on a local level, downzoning entire wards so that luxury construction can't be built. I have argued and tried to present in other forums that we can actually make a case for something like reparations, for something like the idea that if the city says, as they did with the 606 trail, we are intending for this to increase real estate value on the near northwest side. Essentially, we have the state saying, we are using your tax dollars to kick you out of your own neighborhood, right? 
That is a liability that the state can be called to account for. I think we can make gentrification illegal in our lifetimes. That's my hope. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, something I should have said is that I'm, I'm also grateful to Marisol LeBron and Michael Bottegas for having put me in touch with, uh, with Jesse. And, um, and saying that uh, makes me also acknowledge the great help that uh, La Libre Famodou has been uh, in uh, creating more links, both of, uh, uh, in, the case, in, in this specific case of Mara and, and Benji, but even with much more people in this room. So thank, thanks so much, people. Um, and so um, now is uh, Mara Hodges' uh, turn. She reads a piece called Policy and Grief in Chicago, Restraint, Mobility, and Surveillance in, in social on Social Media. Hi, everyone. Thank Hi. you. Hey, Hey. Um, thank you for being here. It's great. I'm seeing a lot of familiar, friendly faces I haven't seen in a while, so I'm excited. And thank you to the organizers and also everyone I know and don't know, because I know on a Thursday night in Chicago, there's a lot of places you could be, but you chose to be here. Before I jump into the actual contents of this essay, I wanted everyone to know about a resource. If you could pull out your phones or laptop or whatever, you don't have to, but um, and go to cpdp.co, or you could Google the Citizens Police Data Project. I work cpdp.co. Um, on Twitter, it's at cpdpbot. Um, I work with an organization called the Invisible Institute, a bunch of them are over here, um, and we have a database that is what you're looking up right now um, of police misconduct files and data. And um, you can basically type in an officer's name, you can click on your neighborhood, you can look by school zone, things like that, um, and see an officer's misconduct history. Um, I bring this up because it's kind of central to our work is getting public information from the government, making it accessible and usable, um, and using that to demand changes within Chicago. And ideally it can be a model for the, rest of, for the rest of the country. But this is unique and something that really Chicago only has at this level, um, so I encourage you to use it. Um, I also want to bring attention to the fact that when you open CPDP, um, you see that there's about a quarter of a million allegations of police misconduct. Um, from 1988 through 2018. And we know that there are a lot more. We have searchable records going back to 1967. But um, something important to note is that only 7% of those are disciplined. A quarter of a million complaints, 7% are disciplined. And many of the ones that are disciplined are when just an officer is making uh, claims or, um, or complaints about another officer. Now, Think about your own police experience in Chicago, and everybody has some. It doesn't mean that you were beaten by a police officer, it doesn't mean that you were arrested, but you have likely interacted with a police officer driven by a police car, felt a type of way about something that has happened in the city. And so everybody here has a personal relationship to the Chicago Police Department. Now, think about if you had had, have had an unpleasant encounter with a police officer interaction, whatever. Have you filed a complaint? Mm. <laughs> right. 
the students that I talk about in this essay that I interview, there's, um, there's samples or there are excerpts from oral histories that I've done with them. Um, they have plenty of encounters that they could have made misconduct um, complaints about, but they haven't. And so we know that this database and this, this data is just a slice of the lived reality in Chicago, and I'm sure you're not surprised to hear that. Now, turning, now narrowing down to like what this essay is actually about. At the Invisible Institute, we do a lot of data stuff, but we also work every week in a classroom, Hyde Park Academy on 62nd and Stony, with juniors and seniors. And we show up every Tuesday, become just a presence in their lives, sort of assisting them with their media broadcast class projects, and then doing role plays and conversations about constitutional law and police encounters. And while the point of the project is really to talk about sort of the mundane everyday level of police encounters, whether that is being stopped and frisked or traffic stops, um, I think something that strikes me every single week that ended up being the focus of this essay, and I was really grateful for this opportunity to write about it, is the loss of, chi of childhood freedom and joy that a lot of our high school students deal with at a very young age. So. To explain, my favorite thing to do in the classroom is to take them outside of the school, to take them to a playground across, across the street and just let them run around. And as we're on the swings, stories come up and we talk about wild shit that happens. And I think the thing that sits with me every single year is how people say, I miss going outside like this. I miss playing. I haven't played in a long time. And Usually, the, when I ask, like, oh, when is the last time you've done this? I was like, oh, I really stopped going to the park and playing when I was maybe like 13 or 14, before high school. And this, the loss that, that they feel when, about like, losing access to outdoor spaces and the freedom to play without fear, both fear of violence and fear of policing, and I would add to that now, if I were writing this article today, I would actually also add the like ongoing fear of abductions, because black girls in Chicago, this is a crisis right now. If you don't know, please know that black girls in Chicago are being abducted at wild rates, and I don't have them off the top of my head, but like we need teams of people to investigate. So like, if you're interested in talking about that, please come see me and Trina afterwards, because not enough people are talking about it. But these fears of abductions, policing, and violence keeps kids stuck indoors. And so then I get into this, this discussion of, okay, if you're stuck indoors from the age of 14, really only going to home and school, maybe work, you're not wandering around outside, um, how do you live out your life? Like, what are, what's your social environment like? And your social environment is social media. Your social environment is Facebook and Snapchat and maybe Instagram, but really, though we, though, when I say we, I say me, um, since, like, the past four years maybe, I've spent less and less and less time on Facebook, and as I've seen my parents spend more and more time on Facebook, and I think that's sometimes considered like in, in middle and upper middle class environments, like, oh, Facebook is for old people, but no, actually, my students use Facebook and really need Facebook because it's considered very social. Everyone you know from your hallways and classrooms are there, and so you can have those types of passing interactions of liking things, finding out who's pregnant, finding out who got shot, finding out like, what's going on with gossip in school, and even after school, because a lot of our students also don't then go to college. They stay at home, they work, they're stuck inside into the, their early 20s. 
Um, and so Facebook is still critical, and the police knows this. So CPS uh, contracts the University of Chicago Crime Lab to help them, and like both the Chicago Police Department and CPS, um, the education and crime labs are closely connected, to help monitor um, social media activity in, in, in schools. The, the pilot program for this was from 2014 through 2017. It was called Connect and Redirect to Respect. What? Wait, we Connect and redirect to respect. Uh, yes, oh moment of silence for that. <laughs> um, but basically, it was analysts using Dunami, which is CIA level software. It is CIA software um, to track like about 14 schools at first. Our school included in that list, um, and try to establish connections, create social maps of what students were going to fight, what students were at risk for certain things. Um, and potentially this could, this could make some students safer, like that was the intention, right? But I think it's important to not talk about the policing and arrests and um, further isolation into your private life. It's not a side consequence, it's one of the main implications of this kind of surveillance work. So, the, the term that I started to realize as I was hearing stories from students about, oh, I was posting this on Facebook, or like, I was expressing grief about a brother who, who had passed, who had gotten shot, and families comforting each other, families talking like young dudes down from retaliating. That type of discourse happens on Facebook, of like, no, 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 stay strong, keep your head up, like, don't, don't even get into that stuff. That, that is surveilled. Those discussions are monitored. And so this idea of policing grief, of policing very real conversations that have to happen after somebody is shot and killed, is horrifying to me. Because when we talk about privacy and surveillance, none of my students are deluded to think that their media is not being monitored. But they don't have another choice. So the fact that they have to express grief somewhere, because where else are they going to express it if they're isolated into their homes, if they've graduated high school and don't have a physical gathering space that they go to every day anymore. But then to be policed in those moments of crisis, that to me feels some of the most striking lessons that I've learned from these, these weekly conversations. Um, so I don't, I don't wanna take too long with talking about that. Um, I do wanna just also acknowledge that um, attempts, attempts to surveil CPS students, Chicago Public School students, through um, crime lab programs and like using Dunami, using Geophedia. Um, I think we also need to remember another human element that we're losing, which is a lot of these algorithmic detections of like, oh, this guy used these types of, these sequence of emojis in his tweets or in his posts enough times, or he has this emoji in his bio, et cetera, and so that means maybe he's a gang member, maybe he um, said that, he, maybe he confessed to having shot someone or is going to shoot somebody. This type of algorithmic detection is trying to reinvent a very human level of analysis, which is teachers know their students, and they can tell if something is up. They, can, they often are the first to know when one of their students is pregnant. They're often the first to know when something popped off at home. And so this, this, um, this innovation of trying to recreate this through Dunami is trying to replace a very human level of interaction that already can happen in the school. Um, and so I'm still trying to work that out in my head of like, why are we trying to replace a very crucial role that 
people in the school already do with algorithms, but um, yeah, that's just something I wanted to bring up because I think you guys are in this room for a reason and because you're also maybe thinking about these things. Like what is the architecture of the internet? What is the architecture of our social media? Um, and it doesn't need to be designed this way. Um, the last thing that I'll say um, is not necessarily about policing grief, but just about the state of surveillance architecture in Chicago. Um, if you don't know, there, there was a report published by Georgetown um, Law Pri Center on Privacy and Law, I believe it's called, this past summer about facial surveillance technology in Chicago. And I do think everyone in this room should know about that as well. Chicago has some of the most advanced architecture for facial surveillance in the country. And this report came out in June or July and said that, the CPD said that, well, we have the architecture for it, but we haven't really flipped the on switch. Anecdotally, through conversations with my students, I'm starting to have more reasons to believe that it is being used. Um, instances like um, an officer pulling up on one of my seniors and knowing his last name without ever just having seen him before and he doesn't have any previous arrests. Um, he had been identified by a pod camera. And so um, while I'm not at a stage yet to be able to publish it, I do think it's important to start talking about in rooms and circles like this um, because I think we are, the, the city is not going to tell us what the architecture of surveillance and policing looks like. They're going to tell us pieces of it. And I think we need to be um, pretty aware and always questioning and trying to establish connections between things like the gang database and things like facial surveillance. Um, and while also realizing that um, our young people who are the most policed um, and pushed out of the city, as, as Jesse was talking about, like we're hemorrhaging low-income black people in Chicago, um, to south suburbs, to rural areas, there's an acceptance that like, that this is their new reality, that they've never known anything different, and so they just need to live their lives within these conditions. And so I just wonder what, what are the radical alternative architectures that we can create on social media, that we can create within our schools? Um, can kids go outside and just play as, as high school students? Why don't they have recess? Things as simple as that. Um, so yeah, those are some questions that I'm pondering over and I encourage you guys to. Thank you. Thank you, Mara. And um, for the fourth contribution, uh, we had a text uh, by Benji Hart, which was very much what we, the sort of, um, the sort of topic we had in mind, uh, as, I, as I mentioned in a very directly oriented at, uh, against uh, the Rami Manuel's administration. Uh, what we knew from the other side of the ocean, of course, uh, with uh, the closure of uh, over 50 uh, public schools and the massive investment in policing infrastructure with all the uh, reinforcement of white supremacy that it supposes. And so, and so we were very happy to have this contribution by Benny Hart called the, the No Cop no Academy Campaign. Thank you so much. Um, thank you for having me. And uh, yeah, I'm really excited to find uh, more concrete connections between all the different uh, topics and, and struggles that we're discussing because they're all so deeply interconnected. So I'm really excited to see where our conversation tonight can go. Um, my name is Benji Hart. 
Um, I'm an author, artist, and educator from Amherst, Massachusetts, and I've been living in Chicago for about seven years. Um, I think that's important to say, A, because I'm not from here, and you should say that up front, but B, because so much of what I would like to talk about and so much of what I included in my essay are things that I've learned from Chicagoans, um, from born and raised folks um, during my time here. Um, so what I focused on for this essay um, was uh, the No Cop Academy campaign, which I was a part of. Um, it was an 18-month campaign that just tapered off in March of 2019, um, fighting the construction of a $95 million, now $250 million um, police uh, training academy um, in the West Side majority black neighborhood of Garfield Park. Um, background, we alluded to it, but for folks who might not be from Chicago or who don't necessarily pay attention to what happens in poor and working class neighborhoods in Chicago. Um, in 2012, the Emanuel administration closed half of the city's mental health clinics. There were 12 free mental health clinics. Uh, six of them were closed, majority of them on the south and west side. Um, and disabled, uh, mentally ill, uh, poor and working class uh, activists shut down those clinics, barricaded themselves in those clinics, fought really hard to uh, keep them open. Um, and that was a struggle that happened in 2012. In 2013, uh, the, the Emanuel administration closed 49 uh, public schools, again, the majority of them on the south and west side, impacting 88% black students um, and 93% poor and working class students. So a very meticulously targeted attack on black uh, and poor communities in the city. And both times, uh, the city's reason for doing this, the uh, Emanuel administration's reason for doing this was to uh, close the, the deficit, um, and the city just did not have the funds to keep these public services running. Um, in 2015, um, Laquan McDonald's uh, video is released. Um, Laquan McDonald, a 17-year-old teenager, um, was shot by Jason Van Dyke 16 times. Um, and there were massive protests led primarily by black communities um, protesting his death. Um, the, the Department of Justice comes to Chicago and writes a long, long report um, outlining endemic racism at every level of the Chicago Police Department, which is shocking to hear from the racist Department of Justice. But it's <laughs> them. Um, and one of the final recommendations in a list of about 100 recommendations that the, the Department of Justice made in that report is an upgrade in facilities. Um, and the Emanuel administration uses that line from the report uh, written about the murder of Laquan McDonald um, to justify the construction of a massive new policing compound in the neighborhood where uh, Laquan McDonald actually grew up. Um, so in 2017, on July 4th weekend, uh, the Emanuel administration announces the building of this academy. Um, and luckily, a lot of folks were paying attention, but luckily folks who are smarter and more attentive than myself were. Um, and a core of organizers got together to talk about sort of what can we do uh, to respond to the, the construction of this extremely expensive police training facility um, in the wake of all this scandal and corruption in the police department, but also in the wake of the city gutting all of these social services. Um, and that was really the birthplace of the No Cop Academy campaign. Um, it is, or it was, a youth-led, uh, adult-supervised campaign, which meant that um, the the core organizers were actually black and brown young people from 
uh, the south and west side, many of them from uh, West Garfield Park, um, who were supported by older and uh, more seasoned organizers, but who were the ones actually um, making the calls and um, shaping the, the voice and the vision and the trajectory of the campaign, which ended up being um, a year and a half long. Um, and uh, brought together also over 100 organizations, around 104 organizations um, were a part of the coalition that ultimately endorsed the No Cop Academy campaign. Um, so in March, uh, with I believe eight no votes and something like 40 yes votes, uh, construction of the academy did pass. Um, ACOM, which is a massive conglomerate that paid zero dollars in federal taxes last year um, and is known for uh, frauding and overcharging uh, the governments that they work with, and which is also coincidentally building uh, the four new prisons that uh, New York is getting um, uh, as it ostensibly closes Rikers but replaces it with four new prisons. Um, ACOM is the same company that has uh, won the contract uh, to build uh, the COP Academy. Um, so that's to say we lost the campaign, meaning we lost the uh, uh, we were not able to stop the city from passing this, uh, this contract um, and from stopping to build this academy. Um, but what I really wanted to focus on in the wake of the campaign, which uh, was so long and so hard fought, um, was what were the victories of this campaign and what were the successes of this campaign, which I think is a good preamble to Angelie's piece. Um, because there were so many of them, um, and I was so proud to be a really small part of it. Um, so I think. Uh, a lot of what I outline in the essay in terms of victories are um, A, having a genuinely youth-led uh, campaign and bringing in a core of young black and brown organizers, um, all of them from Chicago, um, and training them up to be organizers in their own right and not just to be kind of the face or uh, the legitimizing uh, factor for the campaign, but to actually be the ones driving it and to actually be, to actually make uh, education um, a core part of the campaign. Um, and we are actually talking about this at a discussion earlier this week, um, that for me that's a really actually a feminist ethic and a feminist um, way of organizing a campaign because so much of what we focus on or, or tend to focus on when we talk about campaigns are the actions and what is visible and what numbers and like how many people did we get out at this event or in the street at this time. And we talk, spend a lot less time doing things intentionally behind the scenes. Um, and I think, I think seeing education as a form of organizing isn't something that we normally do. And I feel like it's something that I was actually really challenged in in this campaign to be like, actually the most important thing we can do is train up a new core of organizers. Whether or not we win this, uh, this vote or this uh, particular, uh, monstrosity that we're trying to block. Um, we want to be able to say at the end of this that there are more people organizing in Chicago than there were at, at before this campaign started. And, and being able to say that um, specifically around young black and brown, queer and trans um, young people is, is a really exciting thing to be able to say. Um, and um, I also uh, really want to focus on how beautiful and powerful the solidarity was um, throughout the campaign and in a uh, in our hyper-segregated city, um, seeing the ways that all kinds of communities came together and were able to make the connection into how uh, the construction of this academy in a poor black neighborhood would impact the entire city. Um, and I, there are so many 
it's, it's, it was like really hard to write and pick which ones I was gonna put, because in 18 months there were so many. Um, but some personal favorites of mine were um, when some folks were even in the room, um, uh, Muslim uh, organizers shut down Brahm Emanuel's Iftar yeah. dinner, um, which was phenomenal. A, because fuck Brahm Emanuel having an Iftar dinner. <laughs> but B, because again, for me as a, a, a black person, it was so, it really brought tears to my eyes when I went to Twitter and saw Arab and South Asian people saying, no cop academy, like justice for black people in the city of Chicago. I remember a banner saying from, from Garfield Park to Gaza, no occupation, occupation is a crime. And like people making those connections um, in the name of no cop academy was so exciting. Um, and uh, another favorite of mine, um, because I was actually a student teaching in Uptown, uh, at one of the schools that closed in 2013, and so felt very directly connected to that uh, act of violence. Um, uh, at, at the time that uh, the zoning committee was voting on essentially approving the land for the Cop Academy, um, Alderman Kappelman, who's a gay uh, alderman of the 49th Ward? 46th. 46th Ward? Uptown. <laughs> <laughs> I live there and it's a mess. I appreciate it. <laughs> we, can, we can talk about him while we're up here. Let's talk. Um, but um, he was the, the chair of the zoning committee, and so we, uh, we marched on his office. Um, and we actually did two actions on his office. One was Queers Against Kaplan, where uh, queer and trans organizers talked about uh, a targeted queer alderman saying, stop using your queerness as a badge of progressivism when you're passing all these racist uh, yeah. policies, which was his own cue action that I was very proud of. <laughs> uh, but I think the one I was even more moved by was bringing black uh, young people from the South and West Side to march on Uptown um, and to march on Kaplan's office. Um, because if you know Chicago, you know that uh, the city is also very segregated by, by branches, and, and black folks from the west side often don't ever go to the south side, black folks from the south side often don't ever go to the north side. Um, and I think it was A, incredibly affirming for black folks in uptown to feel solidarity with other black folks in the city, because even within the black community, we sometimes have a hard time building a geographic uh, solidarity. Um, and so like seeing black folks from all over the city coming to Uptown um, to march on this racist older person was this really beautiful and exciting moment. Um, but also how uh, seeing how that segregation had hidden so much of the violence that had resulted in the wake of the school closings um, because there were three uh, schools that closed on the north side and they're all in Alderman Kaplan's ward if I'm correct. Um, Definitely most of them would have. And, and so there's this one pocket of schools that close on the north side. All of the other ones are on the south and west side. So there's no way we can deny this is an attack on black communities because there's this one little pocket in the one black neighborhood on the north side. Um, and black, young black folks from the south side and the west side seeing Stewart School Lofts, one of the schools that, that closed in Uptown. Boom! Seeing one of the schools that closed in Uptown which has um, already been converted into luxury condos and has a now leasing sign um, on the side of it. Um, and seeing young black people who had no idea that that had happened in their city mm -hmm. and be like, I had no idea. And, and, and a young black people in Uptown, I think feeling really like affirmed by that. Like, yeah, this is fucked up. I'm glad we're not the only ones who think that. Um, I'm glad like other, other parts of the city are like seeing what is happening to us in this one small pocket mm -hmm. um, that doesn't always get noticed. Yeah. Um, so that was, I think, another really, um, and exciting um, action for me. 
But the last thing I want to say um, before we switch out is um, I think the largest success of the campaign for me was creating a mainstream, large-scale, um, abolitionist uh, campaign in the city of Chicago. Um, and by that, I mean um, for those of us, and I see many of us in the room, um, who have been organizing for a long time around police and prison abolition. For a long time, we've been told that that's too radical of a demand, and no one's ever going to get behind it. And you have to, you know, you can't be that radical if you want to get massive sweeping support for the issues that you're talking about and, and, and to try and address um, uh, the violence of the police and prison system. Um, and again, I think the brilliance of the folks who latched on to the announcement in, in July, on July 4th of uh, 2017, um, to say if a, a couple years ago we didn't have two and a half million dollars to keep our mental health clinics open, how do we now have $95 million to build a, a new training facility for, for the police who already have their own training facilities, who are not lacking that resource? Where is that money coming from? If, if we didn't have it to keep the schools open, how can we find so much to further police and incarcerate the same young people who are losing access to education? And I think a lot of people um, who, who the, the, the phrase police abolition sounds radical to them could say, oh, if we didn't have money for schools, why do we have money for police and prisons? And I think a lot of people, ultimately 104 organizations, were able to get behind that, who might not have been able to get behind a campaign that said, abolish the Chicago Police Department, or even defund the Chicago Police Department, which is the next step, which is the next phase. Um, so um, I, I was really proud and really excited to see ways that um, the campaign was able to make prison abolition and police abolition concrete, um, and not just possible, but practical. Not just possible, but like, why would you, why would you spend exorbitant amounts of money that you actually don't have to further criminalize, kill, um, and police poor and working communities in the city when we know education is an investment that actually prevents violence, when we know healthcare and housing are resources that actually stop violence from happening. That's common knowledge. It's not a, it's not a radical new idea. It's common knowledge. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's about all I need. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I'm excited to talk about um, what all of this means in the context of gentrification um, and seeing the overspending on police and prisons as a part of gentrification and, and as a necessary part of facilitating um, gentrification. And I'm also excited to talk more about um, reparations as police and prison abolition. Um, and reparations not just as a, a check amount or you know, a chunk of money that is handed out, but actually uh, something that requires the, the massive restructuring of the anti-black systems of our society. Mm -hmm. Thank you. in Chicago uh, of us all, uh, and uh, we tackled uh, this dimension of uh, the settler coloniality of, of Chicago, as well as the various uh, architectural embodiments of, of uh, this violence that we, we all just talked about, and uh, her text was called How to Lose in Chicago. Hi, um, I'm really excited because uh, Benji, I'm also not from here, and I also have lived here for seven years. I know it's very um, but uh, I'm so I'm from Colorado. Um, I moved here seven years ago, uh, and I don't belong here. 
I don't belong in Chicago. And I feel like I also don't belong from where I come from. Um, and so I feel like when I moved here, I came here for graduate school and I was studying journalism at an art school. Uh, I latched into, latched onto architecture, A, because I, I had like a, a secret love of buildings. I was a, before I moved to Chicago, I was a janitor in a David Ajay museum, art museum. Um, and I did that for a while. But, um, so I, I kind of fell into architecture journalism strategically, but also randomly. I feel like people really wanted someone who wasn't a white guy writing about architecture, and I was really happy to do that. Um, I was happy to fill that void. Uh, was it charging the race card or something? Um, but yeah, uh, so I've been writing about buildings now for about five years, and um, the reason why I say I'm not from here and I don't belong here is I feel like that's an asset to why I'm able to do what I do, um, which I write kind of about feelings and buildings. Um, I think that Chicago has this really interesting connection to its architectural heritage, but I was always really confused about why people would talk about like how damaged the city is as if they're really proud of it. And um, so I, didn't understand why everyone was so stoked on the fire. Like, it sounds like a tragedy. <laughs> and then these people were like, we're gonna like build this boat and <laughs> sail it down the river and then light it on fire in tribute to the fire. <laughs> um, and I think it was like 2013 or 14, and I couldn't fully, I can't wrap my mind around why people are so thrilled about, you know, like Boston has with the big molasses disaster. Do they celebrate that? I, so, um, it was like it killed like a lot of people, right? Molasses like drowned people. So, I was really fascinated by the idea of loss and why people approach um, the the idea of development from loss. And I started seeing it in all these different little places from an, as an outsider. Um, and I guess. You know, one thing, for example, the first biennial that took place, there was an exhibition of Studio Gang's police station um, on the first floor. And I, I was like, all these people were like, oh, it's so great, like, you know, police station and like amenities. And my first thought was like, well, why do we have to, why in order to like give people a place to be safe and to hang out and to learn and to be expansive with their lives, why do they, have, why does it have to come to the police station? Like, why do you have to lose something in order to gain something? And then the 606 happened. Weirdly, I was looking like right next to it before it became the 606, and I used to like hang out up there in the winter and like warm my hands in that flame that kept the tracks melted. Um, but I was, I didn't understand why there weren't any real protections for people who were renting or who owned homes there. You know, home ownership doesn't protect you. It, it means you're gonna have higher taxes and you're gonna have to sell your home. There's no protection there. So when I was reading as it was happening and activists were demanding that there be some kind of um, benefit agreement, some kind of um, actual legislative protection, and it was ignored. And now those aldermen are just like, we're on it now. And it's, it's like in hindsight. Um, so I wrote about that in this piece. When Leopold <laughs> approached me, he's like, we're having all these activists contribute. And I was like, man, I am not an activist. I went into journalism because it's like a 60-40 split of like social time and alone time. Um, I go and I talk to strangers 60% of the time, and then 40% of the time I sit in a dark room at home, like 
with anxiety. <laughs> so um, I, <laughs> I decided to write about um, loss. And I was also in this place where I had been exchanging poetry with this friend of mine for a couple of months. And a lot of the poems that we were sending back and forth to each other were about loss and about how to lose things. Um, and about the idea that um, when you, like if there's a, there's a line in one particular poem that's in the piece, um, if you want to keep something, you have to lose it or forget it because then it goes to a bigger place. And I sort of thought about that in terms of like how do people in Chicago kind of define themselves, their place and their sense of agency uh, by letting go of some things, letting it go to a bigger place uh, and kind of starting over. So I walk through what I felt like is a pretty unusual timeline of Chicago. I start um, at the corner of Michigan Avenue and Wabash, where there's the bridge. Um, and I don't know if you guys have ever listened to uh, Sarah Vowell has this really wonderful radio piece um, about uh, how you can tell the entire history of America from the corner of Michigan Avenue um, on the bridge by that like relief sculpture and where you can see Wolf Point and there used to be a, um, a, hay, a, a, a mill, like some kind of an oat mill or something um, on that where there's the Hotel Monaco's there now. So you can kind of see all of the history of American industry and of you know colonialism um, both remembered on this plaque um, and from that point. So that plaque is really unusual because it's literally like three, a triptych of loss, right? It's like the really racist relief of um, white people being savagely murdered by Native Americans. But you know, there's like no room on the plaque for like, well actually these people were trying to inhabit unceded land. But um, they go on and talk about rebuilding after the fire. And like, this is like this huge monument to loss and it's something that's really important. So I kind of go from there and I, I move into the different ways that we've lost, right? The idea that the closure of schools is seen as a, um, you know, I just published this piece. I'm like the most hated person on the internet right now with white men. Um, because I, I brought, I, I like to bring up closed schools as being this really unusual phenomenon because people are like, well, what are you going to do? Like, yeah, the school's not doing well, when the population, why not close it? And like, you don't do that without really thinking through what is going to happen to a neighborhood when you close a school, when schools define vibrancy. Um, that this entire building stock is just going to sit dead for years and years and we are going to have to live with it. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I discussed closed schools and the idea that why is it that a public asset like a CPS school is, how can we think, even begin to think about these as real estate transactions? Mm. Like, where, where does that begin? Where is it that in the rules of real estate, and, and the board, the CPS board at that point was just stocked with real estate people. Yes. Um, where is it that we begin to define public assets in terms of real estate transactions? Um, so while Stewart School becomes this like loft amenity, multifamily, what, whatnot, um, which is atrocious and devastating to see photos of, by the way, um, how is it that we can get to the place where we see that as an asset and not a loss? And why does why do new homes have to come at the price of losing schools? Anyway, um, and I don't know. I think that for me, the really I wanted to write this piece because I really wanted to get mad at Mies van der Rohe. Um, yeah. I hate 
East End Row. And I, I, I deal with a lot of Illinois Institute of Technology students um, who are lovely, and they just have never been told that there used to be something on the ground of where the Illinois Institute of Technology, they, they think they've pretty much been told that it was a vacant piece of land. And so I really wanted to just like take some space in a piece to talk about mega flats and what actually happened there. Because even in, you can, you can find it anywhere online, right? Like there's something in the biennial here about it. Um, IIT bought that building, took charge of that building and starved it. So they didn't just like take it over and it was already demolished. It already in like bad condition. It was a place where working class black people lived and thrived. And people talk about it in terms of you know its um, its role in, in building the Black Renaissance in um, poetry and music, but it was a thriving working class group of people until IIT took it over. They refused to put in fire sprinklers. They refused to deal with cockroaches. They lowered the rent so much that um, they essentially would. It became a, what is it called like. Um, Tenement, not tenement housing? It was like a temporary housing. Right. It became temporary housing. It was a, like an SRO. Um, and so there was a fire, there were no sprinklers, so it was pretty messed up in there. And so in the same way that the city of Chicago did Lathrop homes, they just starved it out. People moved out and they tore it down. And they took it over in 41, they tore it down in 51. And in 54, the president of IIT at this point like, gave a speech to the Chicago Club or some shitty group and was like, oh, you know, you must remember Mecca Flats. You know, it was a great place at one point in time, but now we're going to have these Banderos, Crown Hall building. And that's what's there now is Crown Hall. And then IIT has the audacity, right? They're like doing all this excavation work for like HVAC or whatever. And they find some like relics of the um, old Mecca Flats building, like tiles and, and some little kitchen pieces and things, and they start a fundraiser to preserve the relics of Mecca Flats without any acknowledgement of the fact that they did it. They did that. Like, you did that. You made that happen. You made that possible. So, you know, I went to Richmond to visit a friend, and they have this kind of battle of their monuments right now to tear down the monuments. Um, to Confederate generals, um, and I come back to Chicago, and it's like, man, we have like monuments to terrible humans, and we are like polishing them. We're giving them <laughs> architecture awards for preservation, because right. no one wants to talk about the fact that that stuff was built at the cost of a thriving black community. Because in Chicago, I mean, think about what E. Viewing says about gentrification that. We have gentrification because people with power can't imagine that people of color want and deserve and have had good things and we took them away. Until we can change our mindset to reimagine a world where people of color drink coffee, that coffee isn't the sinner in gentrification. It's the, it's the belief that only one group of people has those things and should have those things, should have nice things, should have walkable streets, should have bikeable streets, should have access to public transit. That's like a wealthy people thing. And until we can change our minds about that, we can't actually move past what generation can be. So essentially I wrote this piece because I'm just at this point in my life clawing at a way to imagine a better world. And like I do this exercise at night sometimes where you you know when you have like a, a crush on someone 
and they don't, they don't know it, and so you're like laying in bed and you're thinking about them, and you get that little like flutter, uh, where you like kind of imagine like when then we're gonna kiss, or like then he's gonna touch my hand, or um, <laughs> and then you get really like, kind of excited, you know, you get like that like Whoa. I try to do that, but about detach public assets from real estate. <laughs> We need to write about them like catastrophes. We need to re we need to imagine a world in which every piece of lost public asset, every time a person says they're you know they're a preservationist and that they're going to restore a place to its natural glory in terms like a white perspective, we need to see that as being a violent attack, and we need to imagine something better. That's all. So we, we made it completely accessible online uh, for free, and then the, the, the price the price of the of the physical object itself is uh, is much lower than the price of production. Uh, so it is it is available for 10, 10 bucks. Um, but so we we're already a little bit late on time, so I won't bother you with any questions I may have myself. Uh, and instead of that, I might maybe pass the mic because I think we need we need to be gone from this room in 30 minutes, so um, is, there, is there any reaction? I mean, I, I highly doubt there isn't, uh, or, or a question, yeah. Hello, oh. uh, my name is Andres, I moved to Chicago two months ago to study the Black Panthers in Fred Hampton and coalition building in Chicago, so I'm showing up to a lot of community events and trying to understand what's going on. Uh, my question is for Jesse. Um, as what book, article, or writer would you recommend to every American to read that wants to understand gentrification? Because I believe there should be a course on gentrification, but I, I looked it up online, but I don't think I found any syllabus on it. So yeah, what book or specific journal article that you know that will change people's minds about gentrification or writing? I have one. That's, I have one. Yeah, that's hilarious. <laughs> Um, it is called The Neighborhood That Never Changes. It is by Japonica Brown Saraceno. Saraceno. Saraceno, thank you. Um, it is, I mean, it's four case studies. Two of them are in Chicago, Argyle and um, Andersonville. And The Neighborhood That Never Changes. It's super good and lovely. I cite it in my piece too. <laughs> 
So this is awesome you're putting me on the spot because uh, I teach entire courses around gentrification. And so I'm supposed to have a catalog here in my head of books. And um, th this is going to be like terribly egotistical. Um, but there's this thing called when the white people come, gentrification and race in Chicago by Jesse Mum. <laughs> it's not out yet. Oh. Um, but it should be coming out hopefully in the next year. And that's what I was supposed to be working on this week. Um, I think that Unfortunately, this subject has been written about in really, really narrow ways. And each of those ways is like a beautiful part of the facet of this horrendous problem. Um, but none of them, I think, fully encapsulate it. I think one of the things that Japonica was trying to do, and I, I've known her for years. Really? Yeah, she was, she was essentially trying to, she's awesome. But what she was trying to do was essentially say that uh, you can't keep a neighborhood the same. And the people that are trying to stop gentrification want it to stay the same. And I've had this argument with her, and I respect her a lot, so I, I'll, I'll just say right up front, uh, I disagree with that terribly. I, I, what she's essentially saying is a lot of what real estate developers yell in the faces of people like us when we protest a luxury development. They say, you don't want your neighborhood to get better. You want it to stay a ghetto. You want it to stay dirty. You want it to stay bad, right? And of course, they're saying this to the same people who are educating kids and like working in clinics and literally rebuilding the infrastructure of everyday life, right? So uh, we should get to other questions, but uh, I can talk to you afterwards and recommend a bunch of books, but I think they kind of each take just a little piece of kind of what's there. And talk to me too, because I, I yeah. wanna, I'm working on the West Side um, I also wanted to throw in there um, the Battle of Lincoln Park um, with Daniel K. Hertz, um, which is about um, the Puerto Rican community being pushed out of Lincoln Park, um, and specifically the role that the young lords played in fighting them. Yeah. Uh, I should have tossed out another book there, uh, Capital City <laughs> by Sam Stein. The subtitle is Gentrification and the Real Estate State. And it's about the capture of the urban planning profession. And it really just gets into how that whole uh, world got, has been uh, also taken over by investors and finance and the financialization of real estate. It's a New York focused, sorry, I know it's Chicago, but I think you'll find many of the, fra the frameworks and the conversations that Sam talks about having with developers and planners in New York will be eerily similar to what we face here. Oh, we got one over there. <laughs> <laughs> nice to do. Hey, y'all. Thank you so much for speaking today. You're incredible. Um, I wanted to know if there was anything or any events or things that we should do or could do today or in the next month or two months, that's something that we need to be checking out because obviously y'all got the word and you know, you just spoke about the books. Do you want to do this? No. <laughs> <laughs> but also, aside from the <laughs> I would love to hear from the folks um, on the stand if y'all could tell us of anything that you think we need to check out. Um, let me know if you want me to hear from <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. 
All right, I'll, I'll start by explaining what she was trying to just sneakily airdrop into your phones. Um, so I said earlier I work with the Invisible Institute, and um, it was it's cool and weird. I'm not in the architecture field um, traditionally, but I have two projects in the architecture biennial. One is the amazing Phenambulist collaboration, and another is a huge team effort um, of spending the past year investigating the police killing of Haritha Augustus which happened last year in July 2018. Is anybody here from South Shore or familiar with the South Shore neighborhood? All right, we got a few, we got a few. Um, so Snoop was a barber, um, 37 years old, full name Haritha Augustus, and he was walking to and from work during the daytime, um, cutting hair for his friend's bachelor party that evening. And um, there were extra cops on 71st and Jeffrey that day. They were called because there were fears by like a local private security guard that there there were maybe gang disputes or whatever. So new um, new on probation cops were called to the scene. They clearly had never been in South Shore before. You can tell in the body language of the videos how anxious they are. And basically, they pull they stop Harith and ask to see his paperwork because they believe he's carrying a weapon. Illinois is a concealed carry state. Um, so Harith complies, he's pulling out his wallet um, to show his FOID card, firearm owner identification card. Um, and as that's happening, these newer, younger cops reach behind him and try to grab his arms to handcuff him. They surround him. Um, this is the, the postcard that she's referring to is, um, is essentially like a drawing of this um, to sort of show the enclosed, in, like, the, the surrounding of him. Um, he panics and starts running, and very quickly, one of the, uh, again, young, new officers on the scene pulls out his gun and shoots him five times, and he dies. Um, happens so quickly, it happens in a split second, is what um, Eddie Johnson, then superintendent, said, and we know through all of the police narratives of the past 10 years um, that that rhetoric is used a lot, and it's, um, it's also used in courts. And since 1989, um, we, we judge an officer's reasonableness of their use of force based on what another reasonable officer would do. So it's very like, you know, you're comparing just a bunch of bad apples. Um, sorry, actually that's a bad metaphor because it's not really a bad apple problem. But, um, but basically we wanted to challenge this narrative of the split second decision and show how um, the officers created that moment. They created that split second by being there, by surrounding him. Um, and so the, the video exhibition, which is intense, it takes about 40 minutes to watch all of it. Uh, there are six videos. Um, each is about six to nine minutes long. And it shows you through durations the hours afterwards, um, which there were big police um, encounters among protesters and police. There were like a bunch of clashes. Police officers were beating people. Protesters were running away. Um, we show days, which is how the CPD crafts the narrative, is able to release select footage that is very curated to show a very specific narrative from body cam footage. Um, minutes, seconds, and milliseconds. And then years, which is the final ending video that'll come out in January for our final month of the exhibition. 
um, gives you the context of South Shore neighborhoods. So if you are interested in coming and having a conversation with us and watching, um, we welcome you to our space. We decided to pull the videos out of this cultural center space because it, we do feel like a conversation afterwards is really critical. It's very, it is difficult to watch and there are always thoughts racing through everyone's heads when they watch it. So we wanted to sort of create a welcoming environment at our building on 61st and Blackstone, the experimental station. So I welcome you all to let any of us know if you could raise your hands, Invisible Institute people, if you wanna come and have that experience, have tea with us, talk through it. Um, but there's more text about it in this building in the dance studio space, so. Um, yeah, that's an event. Could you say again when it is? Oh, it's ongoing during the biennial right now. Um, and you can come Thursday, Fridays, and Saturdays are the best days. Um, but since this is getting towards the end of the biennial, you can also just let us know, get one of our numbers, um, what works for you, and we will open it up for you. Yeah, um, so it'll be through the end of January. Though the biennial ends January 5th, we'll be open for a bit longer. I just have two quick things. There's um, the Chicago Torture Justice Center, uh, which isn't guaranteed funding by the city, is actually having a holiday party on December 14th. And so they're taking donations if you just want to go and show up. Um, also, a new group formed, Dissenters. Woo! Can you tell us about your work yeah, and what you're fundraising for? <laughs> <laughs> Known. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much, Patricia. Um, and thank you all for sharing your um, pieces with us. We're really grateful to be here. Um, so a group of us have been building out a new um, anti-war youth-led movement um, that we'll be launching in January with uh, training. Um, where we're going to be bringing um, over 30 like badass black and brown queer trans uh, students to be trained and how to run campaigns um, and and building you know building a movement that's long been needed um, in in this in this country. So um, so yeah, we are fundraising for that. Um, you can fund you can you can help bring uh, students to your training at wearedissenters.org. Thank you so much. Uh, I, I think we probably have time for one more. Yeah. Um, actually, back to the question about books. We need a book club. I didn't write a book, I promise. Um, but I think one thing for those of you that are newcomers to Chicago or that you know have been here a long time and want to keep exploring it, keep exploring the city. I can tell you, one of the corners of my neighborhood that I think about all the time is. Uh, Jackson and Oakley, and you can see police cameras around the school that was in danger of closing on the west side of the city that is going through massive gentrification near abandoned like hospitals that are turned into luxury condominiums. There's a lot to see, and the best book is the book that's like being written right now, which is the city. So go out and explore. With that in mind, you know, there's all these. Um, first of all, thank you all for this. This was amazing. Um, for people that you know are doing other type of work in the city. Uh, and people that are interested in you know space and how we can create a better, more just space. Um, I'm just curious, you know, from from the things that you've all experienced and the fights that you've all had to make this a more equitable city. What does a newer space look like? What does a better space in Chicago look like? Yeah. 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 Yeah
and based on the work and based on the things that have informed you um, to this point, what is something that you can like narrow down to say, you know what, this is what I think a better space would look like in the next like two months or two centuries? Centuries. Oh. <laughs> Do we have that long? <laughs> I didn't know. Everyone's small, quick and small response to that. So um, before I begin, I want to give a shout out to my dad. Yeah. Um, he's been a community organizer for immigrant and refugee communities in uptown in Chicago for almost 40 years now. who are imagining these different worlds as they're in training, right? To think about what Benji said about these edu educational spaces um, as a feminist practice, right? As a way of like um, discovering and playing with what these worlds could actually feel like. So instead of it being like a concrete, this is what it looks like, sometimes in those moments when we're in conversation, when we're building community, we feel it. We feel those nuggets, those glimmers of that possibility of, of what that could be when we're organizing in different ways. Um, and, and what's interesting is my organization, Access Lab, which is an arts organization based in Uptown, um, which tries to address the gentrification happening there. There's a $2 billion CTA project that's about to wipe out uh, and put on hold four train stations. And our, our community has fought to keep the Argyle train station open, which has historically been um, a Southeast Asian neighborhood after the Vietnam-American War. And it has its own kind of interesting history where um, in the late 60s, you've heard me kind of say this, in the late 60s, um, as the Black Panthers were organizing in Uptown um, with um, white Appalachians who came up from the Great Migration, gentrification was happening in the area, and then you see the surge of like in the later 70s, Vietnamese, Southeast Asian, um, refugees coming to the area, so it happens kind of in this constellation. But um, we've, we've been thinking about, so our organization has like an architect, an urban planner, a healer, yoga instructor, acupuncturist, a visual artist, theater artist, and it's thinking about how do we bring together a group of people that whose skill set is sometimes built into the structure of, of uh, capital gain in many ways, right? Of, urban renewal at the expense of predominantly black and brown or working class communities. How do you bring, how do you flip that training in a different way and how do you de decolonize it and how do you center um, political education at the crux of that um, and, and the important work of artists. I think a lot of the times we forget or artists or cultural production becomes kind of like um, an appendage or something that's just to make it look pretty, make it look you know, sexy or package it in a particular kind of way, but it's actually fundamental to imagining what these worlds could be in many ways, these speculative futures. Um, yeah. And sorry for sharing my, on that subject, like the thing that I think a lot about, and I can't think centuries, I'm, I can't think of the next week most of the time, but I, I, think, I think about like Pilsen right now, and I think about um, a lot of the white preservationists pushing a landmark district on Pilsen, and um, I, in my imagination exercise, and they all know me, um, I think of the ways that a landmark district can harm a community, it can displace people, it can require them to 
create a lot of expensive um, historic renovations that they have to do. Um, and why this is happening is because there is a very specific population of Mexican Americans who have made that community vibrant and be physically beautiful. Um, a true civic cohesion exists there and that has drawn white people to it for that reason. And so in my imaginary world, I think of that, neighbor, that neighborhood being valued for what those people created and letting them live there because they made it and they should be allowed to enjoy it and to, per, to continue it in perpetuity, per, I don't know how to say that word, perpetuity. Um, there's, instead we're seeing the remnants, the, the culture of a, of a community being commodified. It's transformed into a real estate asset. So in my way, a, a city recognizes places significance because the people that live there and work there and occupy those spaces are valuable. They're the ones that bring value to cities. The people bring value to cities. It's Real estate is bullshit. It's like this rock is nice, so we're gonna make it more expensive. <laughs> the thing that brings value to our neighborhoods in Chicago are the people that live there that have historically made it Polish and made it Mexican and that history moving forward. So that's my like fantasy. If I could jump into that, um, I've often said that if, if specifically because of the era we're in, black and Latino communities decide to hold on to their neighborhoods and figure out how to do it, it will be the first time in the history of the city of Chicago that any ethnic group did that. People have either fled because they were attempting to access greater treasure box privileges of white of whiteness or they were allowed to let their neighborhoods decay and be disinvested or they were simply pushed out we don't really have a neighborhood in chicago where people have been allowed to remain i i dream about this a little thing that tickles me um, when i think about the future is i think about my little baby son staying in humble park and his kids being in Humboldt Park. And I, I can't control that, I can't keep him there. But if his kids live there, they could benefit from such an amazing fabric of people around them to, to heal themselves, to solve problems, to get political action done, right? And so I think about that, how could that happen? I don't think stopping this Juggernaut is going to happen with one quick, easy fix. I can tell you right now, you can call your alderman wherever you are, tell them to support the Affordable Housing for All Act. Uh, you can call your state rep and tell them that they should support ending the ban on rent control, which the real estate industry sneakily put through in 1997 when Chicago was first experiencing this massive wave of gentrification of the 90s. Uh, those are the legislative ways. I think a test case to challenge the legality of displacement through evictions would be incredible. And then I think also the cultural production that's going on in our neighborhoods is so amazing right now. There are eight-year-old kids seeing a play called Not For Sale about the gentrification of Humboldt Park who are growing up now. There's a generation of youth at Logan Square Neighborhood Association that was organizing protests against new condo development that again, the adults were just trying to supply support to, right? And not leading. 
and they themselves decided they wanted to conduct a year-long project to understand why are Latinos even in Chicago and how far back does this go? And they hired a genealogist and they took their DNA tests and then they hired me as a historian. And they did all these different activities over the course of a year to figure out their own past and to root themselves in their neighborhoods. That's something that was not happening in my generation. So I am excited by the youth and I'm excited by what people are producing. And I think it's gonna have to be legislative, it's gonna have to be uh, cultural. And one thing that I've presented at the Cook County level and, and also at the local city level, but also could happen at the state level is, sorry, uh, the idea of creating cultural heritage districts. So not the preservation of buildings and material objects, but the preservation of culture and how we could use that to rearrange kind of the, the basis of taxation in Chicago. I'll be quick. Um, so I wanna acknowledge like a few examples that really inspire me about imagining radical futures um, because I think this work is super important. Um, I think imagining is just as critical of work as resisting because we cannot build this like abolitionist future we want if we don't build alternative structures that are able to fill the void that will that will be there if we abolish the police tomorrow, right? Um, and so I'm really inspired by attempts in a lot of independent cultural buildings to create alternative structures to policing. So instead of immediately calling the police, having various types of phone trees. Um, Miriam Kaba, I remember, tweeted about this like a couple, maybe like a month or two ago. Um, just about like working within whatever building you live in now, whether or not you're an organizer or do social justice work, there is some place you are at work or home where you can think about who do I call in various situations and why do I call that person? Could I be calling someone else? And so that to me is an extremely tangible step and not an easy one. I, I'm not saying like I'm currently trying to work on that in, this, in the building I work in which I am inspired by and also challenged by a lot. Um, the experimental station has three journalism organizations, a bike shop, a coffee shop, youth programs, and I love it because it's an intergenerational space. Little kids are running around, and also you have to think about the fact that little kids are running around. And so what types of like safety measures do you need, and what are the consequences if police are called for something totally unrelated? Um, and I am also inspired by it because it's independent cultural infrastructure, so it's not owned by a university, it's not owned by the city, and I these spaces are kind of rare, and there can and should be more of them in the close future, not just two centuries. Similarly, I can't believe no one said this yet, but like the impending climate crisis or ongoing climate crisis means we don't have that long, potentially. So we need to work on these things now, and we also need to work together to figure out how to build more carbon neutral spaces that are also embracing different types of family structures, because the single family home structure is not gonna work for much longer. So. Those are, those are my imaginary goals. I think jumping off of that, I'm really inspired by um, the fight in New York right now and the massive protests in New York for free public transportation. Oh, yeah. Um, I think we need free public transportation in Chicago and everywhere else. Um, and I, I'm inspired by that fight for a lot of reasons, but the main one is that it's, it's happening in response to police violence in the subway system that mostly young black people are being uh, beaten and attacked because of the, uh, the new uh, yes. uh, crackdown on fair beating. Um, but that, the backlash of that is that not only should we not crack down on fair beating, 
fair beating shouldn't be a thing because public transportation should be free. Um, and I think that's so important because I think when we're talking about abolition, we're actually talking about um, restructuring the systems that are responsible for anti-black harm, but that are also responsible for climate change, and that are also responsible for militarism, and that are also responsible for all these other um, interconnected structures. Um, so like something as simple as free public transportation, we know massively reduces the carbon footprint of a city. And it also stops young black people from being beaten by the police. And it also, you know, all of these things are connected. And so I think when we do things for the most marginalized among us, we are already, uh, just by virtue of focusing on the most marginalized instead of the most privileged, already taking radical steps that actually impact everyone. And the last thing I want to say is, I was also thinking about Miriam Kaba when this question was asked. And one of my favorite quotes by her is she said, we already have a clear vision for a police and prison free world. And that vision is wealthy white communities. Yeah. <laughs> wealthy white people already live in a world without police and prisons. There's drugs in white communities. There's people skip school, people steal things, and no one calls the police and no one goes to jail. So it's possible for there to be a police and prison free world. Um, we need to look to wealthy white communities. And when she says that, what I, what I think is important about that in the context of this, of this conversation is when she says that, she's not saying we want our whole city to look like Lincoln Park. That's what gentrification is trying to do. That's what the systems we're fighting are trying to do. What she's saying, what I think the core of that is, what would it mean for every community to be invested in and for every community to have the value yeah. and for every community to have the autonomy and to have enough to do with the resources that they have with the, in the ways that they choose, because it's going to be different in Pilsen than it is in Humboldt Park. It's going to be different in Uptown than it is in Inglewood. What does it mean for every community to be invested in, in the same way that we invest in the communities that we clearly think deserve investment? Um, and what would it mean for there to actually be a redistribution of resources in an autonomous way and in uh, a way that Poor folks actually get to decide what they do with their resources. Yeah. Right. Immigrant folks get to decide what they do with their resources. And they have the same amount of resources mm -hmm. as white folks to make those decisions. Woo. All right. well, I, I started my introduction by a few acknowledgments. So maybe taking my cue from Patricia, I will, I will make one last, uh, one final acknowledgement, which is to acknowledge the, the degree of badassness of this room. Uh, but uh, thank you, yeah, so thank you so much for, for thank you to all of you and all of you who are, who've been here tonight. And, uh, and thank you to the DNL to, to give us a space to have this conversation um, and have a very good night. So on that note,